All right, welcome at long last to episode 16 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Our guests today are David Kendall, Brian Haidt, and Anupama Srirangan. Remember that order, it's arbitrary, but we'll be sticking into it for the duration of the game. And so can we, in that order, just very briefly, each of you say where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with David. Oh, hi. I am David Kendall. I am in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And sentence about myself, while I'm happy to be on this program, and I've been on a few trivia podcasts before, always like getting a chance to flex my trivia muscle. Cool. Brian? I'm Brian Height, coming in from uh, Okemos, Michigan, a suburb of Lansing, and I am an infrastructure guy trying to help keep our uh, roads and bridges healthy, happy, and pothole-free. Cool, that's important work. Anupama? Hi, I'm Anupama Srirangan. I live in the Chicago suburbs. I work in technology and I've always been interested in trivia and puzzles and crosswords and stuff, but I've been doing pub quiz, that type of stuff, only for about three years now. All right, so welcome everyone. This first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions mostly will serve as a warm up, not in terms of being easy, but just in terms of kind of getting you used to playing and to my question style. But this is the only round you'll each be playing as individuals. So these questions will each be worth just a tenth of a point. They'll serve as tiebreakers at the end if necessary, which has only been necessary once so far. So we'll rotate. So there's going to be nine questions this round. For three of them, each of you will be in first position and then three in second position, three in third. And what happens is the question will go first to the person in first position. If they miss it, it'll go to the second and then the third if both of them miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have at answering, but more time you get to think and a few potential answers could get taken off the table. And the rules will change after this round and I'll explain that when that happens. And yeah, I'll just usual reminder to talk through your thinking. You know, the content of the podcast is people getting to hear your thought processes. So, you know, don't just internalize it, share it with the audience. And we'll begin with question one going to David. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Here's the question. Between 1956, when it first gained independence, and 2011, a certain country was ruled only by two men, Habib Bourguiba and then Zine El Abidin Ben Ali, who deposed Bourguiba in 1987. Power was finally wrested from Ben Ali in January 2011, and a democratic constitution was adopted in 2014. So here's the question. What Disney princess might one associate with this chain of events? Well, first thing that comes to mind for me is it kind of sounds Arabic. Maybe it's because I was thinking 2011 South Sudan, 1956 sounds right for regular Sudan. Although um, I don't recognize any of those names. And thinking of Disney princesses, I would have to go with ones that associated with Arabic and therefore jazz. Yeah, kind of uh, an irregular way in. But so the country in this case was Tunisia and the events that overthrew their government and replaced it with a more democratic one were called the Jasmine Revolution. Ah, hey, a get to get. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, next question, we'll start with Brian. The supernatural short story Imprisoned with the Pharaohs originally appeared in Weird Tales magazine 1924 under the name of Harry Houdini. However, it was actually ghostwritten for Houdini by what man who lost the original manuscript and had to spend most of his honeymoon retyping it from scratch? Okay, lost manuscript around 1924 and adventure stories make me think of a couple of writers and 
That sounds like the kind of thing that F. Scott Fitzgerald might have done as a side gig. I'm going to guess F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. Good guess, right? Era, although kind of an unusual genre for him, but that's not correct in this case. So we'll pass it to Anupama. I am not coming up with anything for that decade. No authors come to mind, but maybe I'm going to go with Lindbergh. Maybe he wrote something. Who knows? Right, yeah. As he mentioned in a previous episode, Lindbergh did win a Pulitzer Prize for The Spirit of St. Louis. So he was a decent writer, but not correct in this case. David? Well, uh, thinking authors of that time, one that kind of come to mind for me is Arthur Conan Doyle. Sounds like the kind of stuff he might write. So I'm going to go with Arthur Conan Doyle. So Doyle and Houdini were famously very good friends. In fact, there was a brief Canadian show called Houdini and Doyle that fictionalized their relationship. Wasn't really that good. But yeah, in this case, the author with a taste for the supernatural who was commissioned to do this, his name was H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, okay. You know, he was that old. Neither did I. No. All right. Next question will start with Anupama in first position. What former co host of Fox and Friends Weekend left her position on The View in January 2020 in order to assist with her father's gubernatorial campaign? Um, I think it's Huntsman. I'm not sure what her first name is. Is it Abby? Maybe. So for real people, last name is all necessary unless otherwise specified. So is that what you're locking in as your guess, Huntsman? Yeah. All right. That is correct. And yeah, her first name is Abby. I got a question. <laughs> yeah. She and her sister has became quite famous during her uh, father's abortive presidential campaign. But yeah, he already had served as governor of Utah once and now he's trying again. All right, now to David. The heroine of what novel published in 1817 is described as enjoying baseball, suggesting that that game might be both older and less American than most Americans realize? Hmm, that's 1817 baseball. Oh my goodness, I can't even think of any. Oh, less American. Okay, so it's not an American novel, which is good. Still doesn't help me that much, as no books from that time are coming to mind. 1817, maybe British, because cricket is kind of like baseball if you squint hard enough. Um, I'm going to say Jane Eyre. I don't know. So uh, what was that? Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre? Okay, yeah. Good guess. I think it was published a few decades later, but I think you're in the right century. Yeah, I, I couldn't think of anybody from 1817, so I went for around yeah. that time. No, it's always better to guess than not guess. In this game, there's never going to be a penalty for guessing. All right, Brian? So I'm piggybacking on that same logic that it could be a character from a British novel, given that Rounders was a British game and it evolved into what a lot of us think of as baseball. So mm-hmm. Unfortunately, now I have to think, where would I find an appropriate heroine of an 1817 novel? Uh, Jair was not a bad guess. Unfortunately, the time frame was a little bit off, so I think a little bit earlier. Let's go with... This still seems off. I'm going to say Catherine from Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights as the novel, then? All right. Again, a decent guess, but not correct in this case. Anupama? Um, I am thinking Pride and Prejudice came out in 1795, I think. So after that, maybe a couple other novels from Jane Austen, either Emma or Sense and Sensibility. So I think I'm going to go with Emma because she had a lot of free time to pursue other things other than just, you know, embroidery and stuff. So I'm guessing Emma. 
All right. Yeah, that's an extremely good guess. The Bronte sisters, which David and Brian went for, were a few decades later. Early 19th century would be the time of Jane Austen, who I think died around 1816. But her last couple notable novels were published posthumously. But in terms of uh, idle heroines of Jane Austen, that is exactly the right path to go down. But you still had a few choices to make there. And you picked the wrong one. It was oh. North. It was Northanger Abbey. Abbey, okay. Yeah, that's a good novel too, because it has a lot of other frivolous things going on, like reading novels and stuff like that, right? Gothic novels, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a parody of people who spend too much time in recreation. All right, but yeah, very good guess. The next question, we'll start with Brian. A character named Kate Bishop, who has yet to be cast, will be the protagonist of what upcoming Disney Plus series tied into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Okay, so I'm thinking of MCU characters, Kate Bishop makes me think maybe a young Captain America, because I think they did a female version of it. I'm going to guess Captain America. All right, yeah, good logic, good guess, but uh, not correct in this case. So I think it goes to Anupama next. I have no idea, so I'm going to go with Black Widow. That's my default answer for MCU. Again, very good guess, but yeah, she got her movie, not a TV series. So uh, yeah, I'll pass it to David now. Again, I really don't have any more of a guess than the other two have, so I'm going to say, because it was popular and they could be turning it into a series, um, Black Panther. You were all right to think about Marvel superheroes um, in terms of the ones who were kind of handing off their power, which I think Brian was thinking of Captain America, who definitely is retired at the end of the last Avengers, but the one who's going to be soon handing off his power, because I guess the actor playing him doesn't want to do a series, but the character itself hasn't really been exploited all that much, so he'll be handing off power to a young woman that character is named hawkeye who was that in the movies is that the jeremy renner character that was jeremy renner yes okay yeah unlike the others he never got his own movie centering on him all right next question we'll start with anupama harry's bar in venice is known for the creation of a certain meat dish and a certain cocktail both named after renaissance era venetian painters noted for their vivid use of color name either one of those concoctions Hmm. I was in Venice in uh, 2016. I walked around a lot. I tried not to go into too many museums because it was, you know, it was nice to be outside. I know Titian is from there and he used a lot of red in his painting. So I'm going to go with Titian, although I don't know any cocktail named Titian. All right. Yeah. Good guess. Good logic. But you're not correct in this case. David? Hmm. Yeah, I've never even been to Venice. Not much of a... Not much of a drinker, and Venice painter, let's go with Raphael. I don't even think he's from Venice. All right, yeah, but still, you know, always guess, right? All right, Brian? Hmm, I'm trying to think of names that might work. All right, I know there's such a thing as a Negrotini, and that might work off an Italian color. I'm going to guess Negrotini. All right, yeah, so the, the meat dish is a, it's a raw meat dish. It's called Carpaccio. Uh, Ooh, and yeah. the cocktail is called a Bellini. Bellini, okay. Oh, yep. I've heard of that too. I like a Bellini, but I didn't think it worked, so, hmm. Yeah, I, I could have added a few more clues there about what's actually in the cup, but as people who know me or are familiar with my uh, learnedly record know, alcoholic beverages are far and away my worst topic, so. <laughs> I, I just learned right how to make a Bellini about a month ago. How to make a Bellini with uh, Gerber's baby food. So oh. that was, yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and, is it peach that's supposed to be its main ingredient? Yes, it's okay. a peach puree. So it's the mind of the jar. 
you just buy the baby food and then mix it with Prosecco or whatever sparkling drink you like. So it came out good. Oh, nice. I'm surprised I even remembered that it was peach. Uh, so, okay. Um, now the last cycle of these, so each person will get just one more question in first position. So starting with David now. Susan Glassbell wrote A Jury of Her Peers, often called the first feminist work of detective fiction, and won a Pulitzer Prize for her play Allison's House. She is often associated with the Northeast as she co-founded the legendary Provincetown Players theatrical company where Eugene O'Neill got his start. Their Provincetown Playhouse can still be found in Greenwich Village. But she was actually born and raised in what Midwestern city where she and her husband Jig Cook formed the nucleus of a namesake group of modernist writers from the city mentored by Charles Eugene Banks? Hmm. Well, it would help if I've heard of any of these people, though, that I know where they're from. The only thing that I can grab on, the only thing that comes to mind when it says Midwest City, the first thing that comes to mind is Chicago. There's a husband, Jig Cooks there. There's Cook County, which obviously has nothing to do with it. I mean, you can be named Cook and live anywhere and vice versa. I'm just going to go with Chicago. Yeah, generally the hints aren't going to be that straightforward. If it's Yeah, I, I didn't think so. If it's Chicago, which is far and away the biggest and most famous Midwestern city, I usually put Midwestern city in the question. But uh, yeah, still got to guess something. All right, Ryan? Okay, knowing that Chicago is out of the running on large Midwestern cities, I have to think of other cities that would be large enough to have their literary tradition at that time. And I've recently been to a couple of them that I would probably rule out. I will say St. Louis. Yeah, another big Midwestern city, but this question's skewing a little bit more toward the obscure, so that's not right. Anupama? I'm going to guess uh, Minneapolis, because I'm not sure what decade Susan Glassbell. I've never even heard of her. There goes my feminist cred, right? Um <laughs> So I'm just guessing because Gatsby, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald is from there. So I'm just guessing Minneapolis. Yeah, decent guess. But there aren't too many literary traditions in the Midwest. And often, you know, they're just associated with big cities. But surprisingly, even um, not necessarily as kind of a descendant of this group, but even today, one of the places that people go to be trained as creative writers, as depicted in uh, Lena Dunham's show Girls, is the state of Iowa, which has a famous writer workshop. Ah, yeah, the, the, now, had I, that had I put Hawkeye together with that earlier clue and thought you were oh, throwing wow. some Big Ten knowledge out at us. Some what knowledge is it? Hawkeye, because the Hawkeye being mascot of the Iowa Hawkeyes football team, uh, and thus, and of course, the University of Iowa writing program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that wasn't intentional, but your knowledge of the Big Ten will come in useful at some point in this game. <laughs> I'll foreshadow so what that. city was it in Iowa? This was Davenport, Iowa. Davenport. And now to Brian in first position on this question. Okay. William Vickery won the 1996 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics for pioneering what's now known as the Vickery Auction, in which the highest bidder wins and pays the second highest bid. However, a 1998 article by two German academics in the Journal of Political Economy claims that who attempted to hold a Vickery-style auction way back in 1797? Okay, so this sounds like something I would guess either one of the founding fathers or somebody within the sphere of the French Revolution and who have a position of power that could possibly take control of that. What if 
it was Thomas Jefferson and his role as vice president. I'm going to guess Jefferson. Yeah, it's a, a very good guess. He definitely was sort of the kind of person who was innovating in a lot of different fields, but not correct in this case. Oh, uh, an Obama. Um, I only recently heard about this type of auction. I think they use it for ad placements and stuff like that. So I'm going to guess, um, I'm going to stay in the same founding fathers area, but I'm going to guess Ben Franklin. Another good guess, a polymath from that period, but not correct in this case. David? Hmm. Okay, so maybe I will get away from uh, United States Founding Fathers. I'm thinking if it's an article by two German academics, it might be somebody in Germany. Uh, so the trick would be coming up with somebody who was famous in Germany in 1797. And nobody's coming to me right now. 1797. That would be... Both German that comes to mind from that time would be... Um, oh, what's his name? Otto von Bismarck. No, he's later. But yeah, that's what I'm going to say. All right. Yeah, he was he was a bit later. So Brian and Obama were definitely right to focus on polymaths. People were kind of noted for being intellectually curious and innovating in a lot of different fields. But yeah, they didn't really pick up on the German clue the way that David did. If you combine those things in terms of the late 18th century German polymath, someone remembered today mainly as a writer, but in his day was also a, a scientist and, you know, innovated in many different fields, both practical practical and theoretical. His name was Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe. Oh, Goethe. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And All I don't right. even know what time period to place Goethe in either. Right, yeah. Even though he's known now for plays and poetry mainly, uh, yeah, he had a huge interest in science. He developed a, a color theory, which anticipated a lot of the scientific work on color later. And he was really into clouds. He actually wrote a huge fan letter to Luke Howard, who developed the classification system of cirrus cumulus stratus clouds. But yeah, all right. Uh, last question. We'll start with Anupama in first position. The Chrysler de Elegance, a 1953 concept car conceived by the great designer Virgil X. Exner, was essentially ripped off by Italian designers and turned into what Volkswagen model that gave its name to a character in The Producers? I have not seen The Producers. And I used to drive a Passat before. I do like German cars. So let me go down and think of Volkswagen model. It's not a Passat. I'm going to go with Jetta because that sounds like a character and some Italian connection. So... All right, yeah, good good logic, but uh, not correct in this case. David? <laughs> yeah, again, I'm going to have to go with Volkswagen models. I mean, I'm familiar with the producers, but I can't think of any character names from there. Maybe Volkswagen Passat, the Jetta. Um, isn't it funny how your IQ drops like 50 <laughs> points whenever you get in front of the microphone? <laughs> Volkswagen. It's not the Volkswagen Beetle. At least I know that. <laughs> um, Perfect Nugent. That's not a. That's not a model. Volkswagen. You know what? I'm just gonna go with uh, Passat because I don't know either. All right. Fair enough. Brian. Okay. So not having seen the producer myself, but being vaguely familiar with it, I'm thinking it was from the mid to late 1960s, which would put it in the era of the Volkswagen beetle definitely being a thing the other potential names i could see as nicknames of volkswagen cars from that general era would be the rabbit which i'm trying to remember if the rabbit would have come out early enough or as that came out after the beetle went its course uh but rabbit also sounds like that could be me i'm gonna say rabbit 
All right. Yeah. So with the producers coming out, as you said, in the late 60s, the jokes that were topical that its audience would have kind of laughed at at the time have kind of some of them have been lost to history. Even car models that were really trendy in the 60s, you know, generally they don't stick around that long. So they would have been superseded by other models by like the 70s. So if you didn't know kind of the names of the characters in the producers, that made that especially hard. But yeah, the director, I believe, both in the film and in the musical, was named Roger Debris, but his assistant was called Carmen Gia, which was the name of the model. So in that round, I believe David at 0.1, Brian 0.0, Anupama 0.1. And what I have. All right. And now we'll move into the main part of the game. So we'll start with the not all that hard round. This is probably going to be the easiest round of the game in terms of the questions. And in this round and in all the successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Some of you were kind of broad in your categories, so I had to do my best with them. And one of you picked categories about things that are kind of not going on at the current moment (laughs) due to the present situation. So again, I had to do my best to to relate to them. Again, not intended be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge it's not a licensing exam some of the questions will relate obliquely and i won't reveal all the categories up front not until they become evident but the twist here is before you can answer your opponents get to work together to try and steal the points from you so the question will go first to them to confer together and then they try and give an answer you only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss if i pass the question over to you without telling you if they got it right just assume they didn't because if they did you're not getting points anyway there might be a few sprinkled in bonus questions extra questions if your question is stolen from you they won't go with everyone so don't expect them to to happen every time you're stolen from but they might they'll be worth half as many points as the original and they'll be related to the original question not necessarily the same category not necessarily the same level of difficulty so these questions now because they're not all that hard they'll be worth two points as a steal one point as a specialist and the points will go to both stealers even if only one knows the answer so we'll begin now with brian and anupama trying to steal from david All right, this question might require a little bit of lateral thinking, but again, remember, it's not that hard, so don't overthink it. According to Memory Alpha, the popular Star Trek wiki, the official anthem of the United Federation of Planets is heard in just a single episode across the entire franchise, the Season 7 Deep Space Nine episode, Take Me Out to the Holosuite. So why are fans so sure that that particular piece of music is the Federation's equivalent to a national anthem? All right. I know less than nothing about Star Trek. Take me out to the hollow suite. All I can figure is that, okay, there is a baseball reference in there, but mm-hmm. why would any sport in and of itself be unique to the Federation? Mm-hmm. And what's the name of the song again? Take me out to the what? The holodeck, which I think was the episode title. That's episode title. Okay. Mm-hmm. What might be uniquely... Yeah, it's hollow suite, not holodeck. Oh, uh, basically the same thing. There's a historic reference that we should be thinking of that particularly mentions one event, or if it's something like give peace a chance, you know, something really iconic within what would seem to be our world. Mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe like the planets or something like like a classical music. That, yeah, that that's that's good thinking. Mm-hmm. If you want to try that, yeah. Because I'm, yeah, I'm short on actual Star Trek knowledge that would help in this question. So the planets makes as much sense to me as anything. Okay. 
let's go with that. I don't know. I don't know how we are answering it as planets. So some of these questions are a little experimental in terms of not asking for a direct factual answer and maybe asking for a little more lateral thinking. But yeah, I think you might be uh, overcomplicating this one a bit. But uh, pass it to David. Well, um, I'm guessing you chose this question because I did put uh, expertise down as Ansem's, but I also really, really, really like Star Trek. So, of course, I really, 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 really like this episode. It features the captain of Deep Space Nine calling a baseball game for his Vulcan, no, Romulan. Romulan rivals, and they assemble in the Hall of Suite to play a baseball game. At the beginning of the game, you see both the Federation teams and the Vulcan teams lined up with hands over their heart while the Federation anthem plays. So that's why people like me who study national anthems think that it was actually the anthem of the Federation because it was played on Federation turf at the uh, Hall of Suite on Deep Space Nine, and it was played much as we use anthems in this current day and age. I can sing the anthem for you if you want, Yogesh. Yeah, no, that, that's probably not necessary, and who knows, it might bring some royalty issues, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's basically right. It's basically, yeah, it was played before a baseball game in the way that anthems are generally in in our world as well. So fairly straightforward. Uh, I think Ryan and Anupama made it over complex. All right. So that point goes to David. And now David and Anupama to steal from Brian. So Peyton Manning was beaten out for the 1997 Heisman Trophy by Michigan's Charles Woodson, whose main distinction as a winner of that award is that he was the only player of what type to win a Heisman Award, Heisman Trophy? Hmm. Well, I'm not a sports fan. I don't know if you are Annapurna. Not as much football, but I do know a few of the uh, Heisman winners who are all like quarterbacks. So obviously this is not a quarterback. Um, Yeah, I would think that maybe that might be a good thing to go for, that he's the only non-quarterback. Yeah, but I think he wants, uh, Yogesh wants like a position, like a running back or safety or something like that. Right, Yogesh? Uh, I mean, I deliberately said what type to leave it a little open. So, you know, it's up to you what level of specificity you want to well, go for. Well, you did say that all, like, you did say that all the other Heisman winners are quarterbacks, right? Are you asking? Oh, I, no, no, uh, no. I'm asking Annapurna. You uh, did say no, that no, 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 oh. no, no. I'm saying it, quarterbacks tend to be like a, you know, big representation among Heisman winners in college, Um, or at least the ones that I know. I don't know all the Heisman winners or anything. I mean, I barely follow NFL prior to that. I mean, like whatever (laughs) they did in college, I wouldn't even know, right? But I think we should go with some kind of position, like a running back or linebacker or tight end. Yeah, it would just be a crapshoot for me, really, because I have no idea what position that person would play. Do you think it could be like a coach position i don't know whether heisman winners i don't think that they would give those out for coaches no all right let's go with uh let's go with a linebacker i don't know okay let's go with that so you're locking in his only linebacker to win heisman yeah yeah. All right. I'll keep quiet about that and pass it to Brian. Oh, you guys were really close. You had the right idea in that knowing that he was not a quarterback in this case. Peyton Manick was a very famous quarterback at that time with Tennessee. And among other positions in the field, you do have other players on the defensive side. And I think what Yogesh is going for here is mm-hmm. that Woodson was the player to win the Heisman from a mostly defensive role, where you had others that might have appeared on defense, you know, on a very 
limited basis or might have been a returner. I think Woodson was the only primarily defensive player because he actually played in the secondary rather than linebacker position. I didn't have enough knowledge to get me there, no. Right. So, yeah, the Heisman does go disproportionately to quarterback, but it also goes to running backs, a few halfbacks, wide receivers, and so on, but almost never goes to a player who primarily plays defense. Woodson, although he did have a few different roles, he was primarily a cornerback, and so he was a primarily a defensive player, and the only one to win the Heisman to date. Mm-hmm. All right, next question is Brian and David trying to steal from Anupama. So speaking of the Jasmine Revolution, as we were earlier, the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize went to the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet, which was formed from four major civil institutions of Tunisia. So one of those institutions, known in English as the Tunisian Confederation of Industry, Trade, and Handicrafts, almost certainly took its preferred acronym from the name, so it was basically like a backronym formed from the name of a Phoenician settlement in modern-day Tunisia that was ruled at various points by Carthage and Rome, though you may associate it more with upstate New York. What is that acronym? I'm thinking, was there Ithaca around there? Niagara is another upstate New York. I think Niagara was named after um, Native American terms. Yeah, Oneonta, Syracuse? No, Syracuse is more towards Sicily. No, Syracuse Sicily. is in Sicily, isn't it? Right. I'm trying to think of other upstate... Uh... Ithaca also has a T in it, too, if that helps. The acronym probably would have a T because Tunisia. Ithaca makes sense, given what you've pointed out. Yeah, and nothing else is really coming out to me as a really good candidate for upstate New York. You want to go with Ithaca? Sure. Okay, let's go with Ithaca. You locked in Ithaca. All right. Uh, so, uh, Anubama? I was going to go with Ithaca. I don't know this answer, but there is no fun in going with the same answer, right? Because obviously they get the point. So, I will, for the sake of giving a different answer, I will say Troy. All right, so you both, you know, went for cities that are in upstate New York. But yeah, if you'd maybe thought a, a little bit more about the... So if you couldn't work there from the, the settlement itself, because yeah, Ithaca was in ancient Greece, Troy near ancient Greece and what's now Turkey. But in terms of what's in, in modern day Tunisia near Carthage. So Tunisia, is, in terms of European languages, the main one there is French, because that's who it was colonized by. So the full name of this institution in French is Union Tunisienne de l'Industrie du Commerce et de l'Artisanat. Or Utica. 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 Other. Where they don't call hamburgers steamed ham. I could also have put in a Simpsons reference here, but uh, <laughs> not much room in the question. All right, Brian and Anupama now to steal from David. Due to its prominent dead center placement of a Cicero parrot, the flag of Dominica is one of only two national flags to contain what color? And I'll, I'll just note here for this entire episode, um, the episode-specific note, that since there are going to be lots of references to national anthems and national flags, unless specified otherwise, nation is defined basically the way Sporkle defines it. So one of the 197 Sporkle-recognized nations. Okay. Okay. I think this came up in some other trivia I was playing recently, and I think the answer is purple. Purple? Okay. I don't know the flag of Dominica. I thought maybe something related to pink or whatever, because that's not a common color in flags, but we can go with purple. We're going to go with purple. All right. You're locking in purple? David, is that right? 
Yeah, they're absolutely right. Uh, purple was a very rare color in ancient times. So I guess because of that reason, even modern day flags where it's much easier to recreate purple, it's very hard to have it. Only the flag of Dominica has it. And there's a little bit on the flag of, I believe it's Nicaragua, where there's a rainbow, which includes purple. Yeah, and the unreleased pilot of this podcast, there's a question about Tyrian purple and yeah, how you basically get to crush thousands of uh, little marine animals in order to get enough to dye just one robe, which is why it was considered such a big deal. But um, yeah, you know, so historically it was much rarer. And I was going to ask as a bonus for David what the other one was, but he already revealed it. So I'll just give him credit for that. Okay. David Anupama now to steal from Brian. So George Allen is the name of several football coaches. One was the head coach of the University of Maine in the 1940s. Another was twice named NFL Coach of the Year, 1967 and 71, and a namesake Virginia Senator. Then there's the one described by Wikipedia as a crony, quote unquote, of three presidents, FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower, who was technically the head coach of Cumberland University for the duration of one game against Georgia Tech in 1916. What is notable about that game that we still remember it over 100 years later? Hmm. And this is for me and Annapurna? Yes. Okay, I think I know this Annapurna. I believe that game is notable for the fact that the final score was the biggest in... I don't know if it's professional sports history or college football history or whatever, but the score was 222 to nothing. And yeah. that's why we, yeah. And that's why we still know about that game to this day. So do you want to just say biggest score in college football history? Yeah. Let's go with that. I have not heard about this. So that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. It's uh, that's the only reason we've heard about it. I remember it was Georgia Tech. I couldn't remember who the other school was. So we are locking in with biggest score in college football history. All right, yeah. And uh, by the way, yeah, her her, her name is uh, Anupama with an M. Not, uh, Anupama. Actually, right. it's Anupama, but that's okay. <laughs> All right. You demonstrated sufficient knowledge with that answer. And actually, yeah, you're right. It is 222 to zero. There's a famous picture of the scoreboard where they had to bring in an extra two in order to fit it in. All right. And so, uh, Brian, as your bonus, you remember who uh, Georgia Tech's coach was? Who The uh, one and only John Heisman. Who, yes. as had in the previous question, is the namesake of the Heisman Trophy. Exactly, yeah. Someone whose name was dropped in the previous question and uh, was apparently in a very vindictive mood that day because he really ran up the score. There were contractual issues. Uh, Cumberland basically you know, had a contract and they basically were trying not to have a team, but oh wait, Heisman was still going to have his game. So. Right. All right. Uh, now, Brian and David to steal from, uh, how did you say it was pronounced again? It's Anupama. Anupama, just like the accent on the first part. Yeah. yeah. All right. Question now for Brian and David to steal from Anupama. In 2015, David Henry Wong, perhaps the most prominent Asian-American playwright, was stabbed in the neck by a stranger in an apparently random act of violence. This act is dramatized in what musical staged off-Broadway in 2019 and a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Drama that Wong co-wrote with Janine Tesori, who we've mentioned before on this podcast in connection with Fun Home. Its title is a two-word phrase from international relations popularized by Harvard political scientist Joseph Nye that refers to how nations exert influence without resorting to military or economic aggression. I must admit I didn't know anything until the end. I mean... You know yeah. what's this, Brian? Uh, thinking of two-word phrases that might work in IR, soft power comes to mind, if that's a thing. But Okay. I suppose a proxy war, but I guess that kind of counts as military aggression. So did you want yeah, to go I'm with thinking. your uh, soft power? 
Yeah, I, I, I like that. Okay. All right. You're locking in soft power? Yes. All right, and yes, that is correct. Ooh. Any of you know which musical actually did win the Pulitzer Prize in drama this year? Mm, nope. Okay, it was called A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson, not to be confused with any uh. other Michael Jacksons. <laughs> All right, now, Brian and Anupama to steal from David. The two buff shirtless men on the flag of Belize are the most prominent human figures on any national flag by far. But there's also a human figure, albeit a very small one, on the flag of Malta, due to its containing what award that was granted en masse to the entire Maltese population to honor its bravery during World War II? Malta. Hmm. So... I know they are. They have some kind of association with the Knights of Malta or something. I'm trying to think of... Yeah, or there's a Medal of Honor that would have been given out by the French, perhaps, or the English... Mm-hmm. Maltese. Yeah, the Maltese cross is definitely a thing, but is that mm-hmm. a prominent feature of the Maltese flag? It's a bravery award. So you're looking for the name of the award, Yogesh? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Where to center, center it? Given, it was given to the entire population of Malta. Um, is there something called the Cross de Guerre, or am I just making that up? I thought something that contains cross in its name, but I've never heard of cross de guerre. That's, yeah, or that's a French award maybe, for. Yeah, cross, or maybe it's French cross de guerre, maybe cross of war. Let's go with that. That sounds French and, you know, related to war. You know, maybe there is a there's an award with that name. Hmm. Unless, did we possibly give a purple heart to the people of Malta? Because that would have Washington's face on it. Hmm. So the U.S. gave them a purple heart, is what you're saying? That would be the one way to get to a very small figure. Hmm. Okay, we can go with that. I'm not sure. I'm not much of a war aficionado. So I didn't even know Washington's face is on the purple cross. So I mean, purple heart. So. Okay. Yeah, I guess Yeah, we're, we'll lock in purple heart. All right. So um, again, you know, a bit of a, a short term memory thing, right? You just learned a few minutes ago that Malta does not have purple on its flag. <laughs> Nicaragua does. <laughs> All right, David. Well, at the time of World War II, Malta was a British colony, and the Germans were trying to encircle the small island to try to starve it of all its supplies and all that, but they did persevere. And King George V was so enamored with the persistence of the Maltese that he awarded the entire country the George Cross. So normally when you award a person a George Cross, of course, they're going to wear it on their lapel. But of course, Malta doesn't have a lapel, so they put it on their flag. Right. It's it's often, there's a common misconception it's a Maltese cross on the Maltese flag, but it is actually the, the second highest honor given out by the British crown. The highest is the VC or Victoria Cross. The second is the, the GC, the George Cross, which has a little St. George. Although I think it's, it's actually named after King George VI who established it. But it does have St. George on it. Yes, that is correct for it, David. And the next question will be David and Anup- uh, Anupama to steal from Brian. Is there a bonus uh, with that question? Well, you don't, I mean, you got it. You didn't, it wasn't stolen from you. So, uh, oh, okay. yeah, there's no need for a bonus. All right, David and Anupama to steal from Brian. In 1989, L. Douglas Wilder became the first black American to be elected governor of a U.S. state. He was not, however, the first black man to serve as a state governor. 
For about a month beginning in December 1872, PBS Pinchback was the acting governor of which state? I think I heard somewhere that might be a southern state. I don't know how true that would be, like if they would allow black people to serve as a southern state even after Reconstruction. Uh, do you know anything about this, Anapalma? I'm thinking maybe somebody was assassinated at that time, somebody prominent, and this person had to step in before they could find somebody else. Um, 1872. Yeah, it's a bit far after the Civil War, so... Yeah. Yes, pinch back. And you've got a one in, what, 37 chance? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, serve as state governor, so he definitely wasn't elected in there, so. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember anything like this in either Illinois or Ohio or any of like the neighboring states like Illinois or Kentucky or anything. So maybe we should go with... Yeah, it's pretty much corruption. How about we go with, like, Maryland or something? I like Maryland. Okay. Yeah, let's go with that. Locking in Maryland? Yeah. Yeah. No logic behind it. We're just no, yeah. <laughs> Pick one. Yeah, that definitely was a state that existed at that time, so uh, good, good guess on that in that regard. Uh, Brian? Okay, so I was actually thinking as you two were going through that, it very well may have been a southern state going through the reconstruction process. And as such, not having an absolute ironclad uh, answer to go with it, I'm actually going to guess Louisiana. All right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, so Reconstruction famously ended, right, as part of the compromise to install Rutherford B. Hayes as president in 1877. So 1872 was still during Reconstruction, when there was still sort of a military presence in the South, and Black people had a, a lot more freedom than they would have during the subsequent Jim Crow era. So, uh, yeah, Mississippi had a couple of Black men in the Senate, and in terms of the governorship, PBS Finchback was uh, lieutenant governor and briefly governor of Louisiana. His family later north, uh, his grandson was the Harlem Renaissance writer, Gene Toomer. Oh, wow. Okay. Hmm. All right. Now, the last question of this round, Brian and David, to steal from Anupama. The Magdalena River Valley, whose amazing diversity has in recent years been threatened by the presence of feral hippopotami, is a major geographical feature of what country? I think I know this one. From uh, the drug field, right? The what? From Escobar? Escobar, the drug lord, exactly. That's where, I, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I know it from. He's Colombian, is he not? Yes. Okay. Yeah, let's go with that. All right. Locking in Colombia? Yep. Yes. All right. Yeah, unsurprisingly, uh, that is correct. And that brings this first uh, not all that hard round to an end. And the scores I have now, I'll go back and recheck them. But it looks like 9.1 for David, 9.0 for Brian, 4.1 for Anupama. That's all very preliminary because in the next round, the point values will go up. So for the only somewhat hard round, the questions are now worth four points as a steal, three points as a specialist. And we'll begin with Brian and Anupama to steal from David. Mm-hmm. The 16th century Italian song La Mantovana, or the Dance of Mantua, lends its melody to both a movement of Bedric Schmetana's Mavlast, the Moldau, and the national anthem of which country? Mantovana. La Mantovana. La Mantovana. So, Smetana is, um, is usually associated with uh, Hungary, isn't it? Hungary, Smetana, Sibelius, Finland, I think. Yeah, that makes sense to me. If you want to lock in Hungary, I'm willing to go with that. Movement of, uh, what's that, Bedrick? Bedlick? 
but yeah, Bedric. I mean, there's okay. some yes, uh, I forget the words, but yeah, I mean, some symbols used to represent sounds that you know are in Eastern European languages. But yeah, although Italy doesn't really have a border or anything with Hungary, right? it's a little bit farther up north. Can't think of anything else. So you want to go with Hungary then? Sure. Okay, well, lock Hungary. All right, David. Okay, well, my first thought when that came up was that I know that the anthem of the Czech Republic goes back way before there was a Czech Republic, and that's kind of in the right area. However, I realized a bit afterwards, and I may be talking myself out of a right answer, too, uh, also that Israel's anthem is based on uh, Eastern European folk songs, and that is definitely looks like it could be around Eastern Europe and all that. So I am going to say Israel. All right. So yeah, so Smetana was, uh, or I'm not entirely certain on how to pronounce that, but I, I can't even pronounce the names of the contestants in today's episode. So <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but he was in fact Czech, not Hungarian. So you were, you were even a little off on the ethnicity, although it's very easy to get those kind of things confused, especially for Americans. But uh, in addition to Voltava or Moldau, the, the movement from Mavlas that took that as melody, its melody also shows up in Hatikva, which is the national anthem of Israel. And that's probably where the Czech came into my mind first, too, since uh, Spetana was a Czech, and those little funny accents, too. Mm. Hmm. All right. Now, uh, David and Anupama to steal from Brian. A 2012 lecture by James Duane, a law professor at Pat Robertson's Regent University, has proven to be surprisingly useful, especially given its source. Indeed, it has over 5 million views on its official YouTube channel and several million more on unauthorized versions. In the lecture, Professor Duane advises his students and anyone else watching to never, ever take what action? Hmm. Never. Never take action. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. 2012. I don't know if law professor uh, maybe is a hint here. I think it needs to be some kind of contrary advice from a right winger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or... that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Surprisingly useful given its source. Mm-hmm. So maybe something related to COVID. I don't know. Not in 2012. It's a 2012 lecture. I know, but um, maybe something that he said then is related. Oh, to and that and that it's uh, and that it's yeah. useful now. Oh, hmm. um, never fly in an airplane or you know things like that. You would think it's um, it's contrary at that time, but it's coming in handy now because okay. we're at strange times or whatever. So yeah. I- I've really got nothing, so... Among the things that they're not doing. Hmm. So maybe fly in an airplane. Yeah, I've got nothing, so sure. (laughs) Whatever you say. (laughs) I know that sounds stupid, but fly in an airplane. (laughs) All right, uh, fair enough. Um, Yeah, I mean, you have to think laterally on some of these, so it was an interesting guess, and I followed your logic on that, but uh, not correct. So, Brian? Okay, so Regent University has a reputation as being a very socially conservative institution of learning. With that in mind, it might come out as a little bit counterintuitive to suggest that if anyone is detained by a law enforcement officer, that as a matter of preserving one's own rights, which is something is actually is kind of a big thing for Regent University because they do get involved in a lot of constitutional law type of situations. I think the advice of this was to not talk to the cops at all without a lawyer present. 
Yeah, so the Regent University, it actually, I think, was founded in the late 70s as Christian Broadcasting Network University or something unwieldy like that. Yeah, but, um, you know, Chancellor is still Pat Robertson, but, you know, sometimes the advice that comes from it is useful no matter where on the political spectrum you lie. And this talk was famously called Never Talk to the Police. Ooh, okay. Okay, that's cool. All right. And now, Brian and David to steal from Anupama. Thanks to its 1968 consolidation with Duval County... What city now has a land area of nearly 750 square miles, or 875 square miles if you count water, and a population more than double that of any other city proper in its state? Okay, so thanks to The Good Place, I know that because one of the main characters is from Jacksonville, and one of the things they say in Jacksonville all the time is they shout Duval to celebrate just about anything. I'm guessing uh, Ah. the city of Jacksonville. And it's the most populous in Florida? Surprisingly, yes. Okay. And again, part of because of the consolidation. I always think it's Miami, and I always remember, oh, yeah, it's not Miami. It's one of those other cities, and I'm always surprised by that. So, okay, let's go with it. All right. Jackson, yeah, I, I've seen every episode of The Good Place. I don't, actually don't remember that specific gag. It wouldn't surprise me, though. There's a lot of uh, nice yeah. subtle things in there that, you yeah, know. Yeah, it don't... could be Blake Bortles subtext I'm bringing into it, so. <laughs> Fair enough. But however you get there, uh, the right answer the right answer. That was the right answer. So, good job. Good job. <clears throat> And now, Ryan and Anupama to steal from David. Prince Luigi Amadeo, Duke of the Abruzzi, gave his name to the Abruzzi Spur, which is now the standard route up K2, but he never conquered that mountain. He tried, got higher than anyone up to that point had, but didn't reach the top. He was, however, the first to summit what North American mountain that is the second highest peak in both the U.S. and Canada? Hmm. Oof. So I think Denali is the highest one, right? Correct. And that's securely within Alaska. This one is uh, ostensibly on the border, which is still a lot of area. Um, no, it, it doesn't have to be in the border, do you think? Hmm. I'm trying to think what might be a good Klondike-type peak name. I mean, around that area, there is uh, there's volcanoes like Mount Hood and all of that. I don't know whether right. people are climbing them. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm pretty sure Mount Hood is kind of tucked away more in the northwest, so I don't think it would count for the Canadian standings. Mm. I don't know of any peaks that are completely within Canada. Can't think right. of any name. Yeah, I'm wondering if it has you know, a remarkable name such as you know, like not a person's name just uh yeah. like a natural feature kind of name right. maybe something like white cap or yeah i'm drawing a blank i mean i know there are like the bear lake and the slave lake and all of those are like lake names are there any mountains close to those national parks mm, or not so much i think they're relatively central i think manitoba or in that part of the country so i don't think they get really close to the united states border there's a bit of a separation between those and the rockies so you said white cap like a like a snow cap white cap right yeah which i really have nothing to go with but i'm running short on actual answers so yeah i've never heard of that either but that's okay let's go with that considering i don't know any <laughs> all right what are you locking in white cap yeah. All right. I think that's like a soccer team in in uh, Vancouver or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and, and maybe that's how it stuck in my head. Anyway. <laughs> All right, uh, David. 
Well, if you would have asked me what the highest mountain in Canada was, I know that that is Mount Logan, and it's really close to the border. Now, when you mention the second highest peak in both the U.S. and Canada, now I know Denali is the highest in the U.S., and I thought Mount Whitney was the second highest in the U.S., but that's all the way down in California. So it's got to be one of those mountains on the Alaska border, because that's where Mount Logan is. Unfortunately, I can't think of any of the names of the mountains there. I do know that they named a mountain in that general area after Pierre Trudeau. So I'm going to guess Mount Trudeau. All right. So Mount Whitney is the tallest mountain in the contiguous U.S., but it's not really close to being the second tallest mountain because all the really tall ones are in Alaska. But uh, yeah, the one that's right on the Alaska-Yukon border and so claimed by both the U.S. and Canada, it's called Mount St. Elias. Oh, I've heard of that too, yes. Oh, darn it. All right. Next question, uh, David, and an open to steal from Brian. The 2000 military legal drama Rules of Engagement, described by one watchdog group as, quote, probably the most racist film ever made against Arabs by Hollywood, end quote. And uh, I think that person is probably not that familiar with classic Hollywood history. But anyway was directed by Oscar winner William Friedkin from a screen story by what former Secretary of the Navy who went on to represent Virginia in the U.S. Senate? Hmm. I did see that movie. I think it had Samuel Jackson in it. You said you did see it? Yeah, I did see that movie. It was set in Yemen. But I don't know who was um, was a Virginia senator before. Hmm. Would have been Virginia senator after 2000. So I'm guessing there aren't that many of them. Yeah, I I but... think there were, there have been a couple of a uh, couple of guys named Warner. I'm not sure whether the current senator one of them is a Warner. I don't know whether he was in the Navy. And you don't you don't know if he was the secretary of the Navy? No. At all? Yeah. No, not to do I. I mean, I got less to go on this than probably any other clue that I've been asked so far. Yeah, I lived in the um, East a very long time ago, 22 years ago. So I haven't been paying attention to all of the um, senators and governors and stuff. I don't know. The only one, the only name that sticks is Warner. I'm not okay. sure what we would go with as the first name. Do I don't think we need one. Yeah, unless you specifically ask for a, a first name, it's not necessary for real people. Secretary of the Navy. I don't you know what go with, of the You Navy. just want to go with Warner then? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think I think in the second episode, which has been released already, there was a question about the the Warners from Virginia. Uh, not related. They're definitely not uh, Warner Brothers, uh, although <laughs> one of them does have a bit of a Hollywood connection as he was married to Elizabeth Taylor. But yeah, those I think predate the 2000 or predate the year 2000. So, uh, Brian. Okay, so there, as uh, you guys mentioned, there are two different Warners, one Republican, one Democrat. However, we're actually looking for the gentleman that defeated uh, the George Allen that was the son of the football coach uh, in 2006. And yeah, interesting enough, while George Allen himself had some very controversial uh, remarks on the campaign trail, we're looking for uh, Jim Webb on this one. Yeah, Jim Webb. Yeah, there was a, a James Webb who was a prominent screenwriter in the 60s and won an Academy Award and uh, no relation to the, to the senator, although yeah, the senator does have his uh, Hollywood screen credit there in addition to having published several novels. And his name was James Webb. Yes. 
Okay, Brian and David to steal from Anupama. Before he committed suicide at age 41 in 1937, the brilliant but troubled chemist Wallace Carruthers ran the Purity Hall lab at DuPont, where his team is credited with two major inventions, nylon and the commercially successful synthetic rubber that is now known by what name? Would that be latex? That's close to the right time period for your synthetic rubber. I mean, latex is the only synthetic rubber I can think of. Run it. Okay. Going with latex. All right. Uh, Anupama? Um, I was going to go with latex. I don't know this one. Um, so considering I need to get some points because they seem to be answering all my questions, um, I will go with... Sorry about that. <laughs> hmm, I'll go with Arlon. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's latex. So. What was that you said? Arlon? O-R-L-O-N? Okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. But yeah, I never think of latex as synthetic because I remember, you know, watching as a kid, like three to one contact or one of those PBS shows, they, they actually showed like how you extract latex from a tree. Like it is a it is a natural product. Although apparently I just looked it up now. Apparently there are synthetic latexes as well. But yeah, the uh, first commercially successful synthetic rubber is now generally known. It's found in many, many things, including I think probably this laptop case I'm looking at right now. It's called neoprene. Yeah. 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 It's also very common in wetsuits used in diving. Yeah. All right. Uh, Brian and Anupma to steal from David. So the first major success of architect Moshe Safdi, whose Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art was mentioned in a previous episode, was a model community called Habitat 67. That housing complex in turn gave its name to the Habitat 67 Standing Wave, now a popular challenge for whitewater kayakers and river surfers. On what river would you find this wave? Hmm. Moshe Safdi. Habitat 67. So its name sounds Israeli or some kind of uh, museum of American art. I don't know, Crystal Bridges, model community. Hmm. And river surfers. I'm trying to think what would be something that would have been built around that time that mm-hmm. would have... And white water. Right. So as I was originally thinking, 67, the Montreal Exposition of 1967, but I don't think you would be whitewater rafting on the St. Lawrence. So I ruled that Mm -hmm. out. There's the planned community of Brasilia in the mid-60s in Brazil, obviously. But Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think where you have whitewater rafting in Brazil. Hmm. Habitat 67. But, you know, Brasilia is not a bad guess. And so... Would it be on the Amazon? I don't know whether it's on the Amazon. Yeah, that, that didn't seem to match. Habitat 67. Hmm. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Hmm. Crystal Bridges. Should we go with Brasilia? Because, you know, we'd, uh, you would think American art is in the U.S. Maybe it's in South America somewhere. Right. But he needs the river. So the Amazon makes sense. I'm not sure that it does. I can't think of anything that's like a wave or a water kind of building, except in Chicago. Chicago has one. Mm. Or wait a minute. Crystal bridges. Would the Orinoco maybe have rafting in South America? Is that in like Venezuela, that that area, like northern, right? Yeah, that's... Mm. I don't know. I like Amazon more than the Orinoco. All right. Are Are we getting timed out there? Yeah, there's no official timer. I'm not sure what that sound was. Oh. You can lock in or you can keep discussing if you want. Right. Yeah, I, I'm willing to guess Amazon if, if you are. So. Mm, whitewater rafting. The only other 
the only other um, river that I would want to go with is like the Colorado or something that puts it in the U.S. I really wanted to go with something in South America or Central America. Let's go with Amazon. All right, locking in Amazon. <laughs> All right, David. Okay, well, I'm not 100% sure on this either, but if I am, Brian, you talked yourself out of the answer. You said what I was all going to say about Habitat 67 being related to Expo 67, which was in Montreal for the Canadian Centennial in 1967. Uh, Montreal is on the St. Lawrence, and like you, I don't really see it as a whitewater rafting kind of river, but St. Lawrence is probably the best I have given the other information on the clue. So I'm going to say St. Lawrence. All right, yeah. Probably now, Microsoft's best known project is the Marina Bay Sands, which was featured in uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Singapore has been throwing a lot of money into development and, and attracting tourism there. But his graduate degree was at McGill University and his master's thesis did become a pavilion for Expo 67. Brian's logic was exactly right. I'm not sure why he didn't keep going along it. But uh, yeah, this wave is part of the Lachine Rapids, which are on the St. Lawrence River. Hey, good job, David. Hey, uh, I got an assist from Brian in a way. <laughs> All right. Now, David and Anupama to steal from Brian. In 1898, the inventor of basketball, James Naismith, founded the men's basketball program at what school now in the Big 12? Ironically, he is the only coach in the history of that program to retire with a losing record. I think that basketball was invented by a Canadian, uh, Go Canada, yay, in Massachusetts. I have no idea who's in the Big 12 or the Big 10 or anything like that. I still don't understand what those even are. But if there's a Big 12 school in Massachusetts, that would be my guess. Do you know anything about these Big 12 schools, Anapama? I know some of them, but I, I couldn't tell you which one belongs in which league or anything. You know, if somebody asked me to name all of them, I'm sure I'll get most of them wrong. Um, I, so, I'm, I'm sure I would get all of them wrong. But, I mean, I, I thought at least I had the back 10, but now I think they're also more than 10, so I couldn't name them either. Um, so, with uh, Massachusetts, do you want to go with Boston University or something? Because you don't want to go with, like, the Harvard and the MIT. Yeah, Harvard and Yale, at least I know those are in the Ivy League. But, uh, yeah, sure, why not? Because Massachusetts we'll is as close as I'm getting. Okay, BU. BU. We'll go with Boston University. Yeah, basketball was definitely invented in Springfield, Massachusetts, but the, the Big 12 isn't really any anywhere close to the northeast uh, brian <laughs> the midwest okay, so, yeah the big 12 is primarily schools within the central united states and the one with the most basketball tradition is the university of kansas where i think part of the long tradition is you had coaches such as fog allen and bill self currently but the university of kansas jayhawks Oh, yeah. yes, that's right. I have a uh, Facebook friend, Mark Good, who's also in the uh, trivia community, went to University of Kansas, and I think he's mentioned ties to Naismith to his basketball a couple of times. Mm. Right. Yeah. He came from Canada. He invented it in Massachusetts, but then he went to uh, Kansas for his coaching career. Mm. So this is the reason every time I win the NCAA pool, people hate me because I don't really follow college <laughs> basketball, but I end up winning the pool. <laughs> <He's gambling. laughs> yeah, there, there's a, a very funny Saturday Night Live skit about a woman who, who does that. All right. Uh, last question of this round before we move on to the super hard round. And the questions go difficulty again for Brian and David to steal from Anupama. 
not to be confused with an alkane or an alkene, an alkyne is a hydrocarbon whose distinguishing feature is what type of bond between carbon atoms? Oh, alkyne with a Y. Yikes, I've never even heard of that. Have you got anything, Brian? All right, I'm trying to remember my types of bonds. There's covalent bonding, ionic bonding. Would it be something as comparably straightforward as a covalent bond? or? Sure. I mean, I got nothing. So. <laughs> I'm here to agree with whatever you say, basically. Okay, yeah, we're, we're going to try covalent bond. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard if you haven't been in school for a while to think back to all those, especially organic chemistry, so many distinctions between different kinds of molecules and so on. And I think carbon probably does bond covalently with other carbons, but that's not the distinguishing feature we're looking for here. So I'll pass it to Anupama. Um, I don't remember this either. My bachelor's in chemistry is from a very long time ago. I don't even want to tell you how long. I will go with ionic, ionic bond. Yeah, so in this case, it's not it's not about the, the electronegativity of the bond, whether it's ionic or covalent. That's not the distinction we're looking for here. It's just if you look on those diagrams, like a simple alkane, the C's will just have one line between them. If you look at an alkene, like ethene or methene, right, it has two horizontal lines between them. But for an alkyne, like acetylene, you would see three horizontal lines joining them because the carbons are bonded with a triple bond. All right. So at the end of that round, it looks like we have 19.1 for David, 22.0 for Brian, and Anupama 4.1. All right. And now for the super hard round questions, we were six points as a steal, five points as a specialist, and we'll go up a notch in difficulty again. I think it's always hard to calibrate these things, especially for just three people, but that's the goal at least. And we'll start with Brian and Anupama to steal from David. All right. So... Probably everyone playing here knows, and probably many people listening know, that Rabindranath Tagore is the only Nobel Literature Laureate to pen the words to two different national anthems. So here's a question. Aside from India and Bangladesh, what's the only other nation whose national anthem has lyrics by a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature? Hmm. Well, is it possible that uh, Loxness from Iceland won a Nobel Prize in Literature? Hmm. I don't know that, but um, Havel is more a playwright, right? Correct. Havel, so we're looking for more a poet, more a lyricist. Yeah, which yeah, I was reflexively thinking of you know, poets and those that might, yeah, that's where Loxness came to mind, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a bad guess. That's a very good guess, actually. Hmm. can't think of any other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of any other like ancient poets or even current poets who would. Mm. Let's go with that, Iceland. Okay. Yeah, we're lucky in Iceland. So Halder Laxness definitely did win the Nobel Prize. That's pretty much what he's known for connecting the Nobel Prize in Iceland. But uh, I don't think he was involved with the national anthem, as far as I know. So, uh, David? Okay. Well, I didn't even think that the fact about Rabindranath Tagore being the only, well, being a Nobel laureate to write two was even that well known, but... Uh, I may have so that, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, so shows what I know. Um, and as a matter of fact, in my mind, I thought that he was the only Nobel laureate, so I was spending my time trying to think of any other, and the key to this also is how long the nation has been around. Like, obviously, for a nation like, say, 
United Kingdom that's been around way before the and its anthem has been around way before the Nobel Prize even existed. So uh, ruling out most of South America, Europe, things like that kind of leaves us with Caribbean and Africa and much of Asia. But nothing's really coming to mind. So I'm just going to take a wild stab and say the Dominican Republic. I really don't know. Yeah, I think if there were a way to hint with the name of the Nobel laureate, that might have been nice, except I feel that kind of would have given it away, at least in terms of telling you which part of the world you were in. But I actually did look up just now because I was curious because you mentioned Iceland, the uh, Icelandic national anthem, Lofsongur, also known as Ogovorslands, is... Ogovorsland, yeah. Yeah. Yes, composed by Sveinbjorn Sveinbjornsson, but the lyrics are by Matthias Jochumsson. But uh, the, the Nobel laureate in question here has, at least to my ears, a fairly uh, similar sounding name of Bjornstern Bjornsson, part of that great wave of... Nowadays, we only remember uh, Henrik Ibsen as a Norwegian playwright. He actually was pretty unpopular. He actually spent most of his career outside of Norway. He didn't think that he liked it, or he didn't like the atmosphere very much, and the feeling was kind of mutual. Even though they love him now, in, in his own time, he was not uh, did not feel very welcome there. But the Norwegian national anthem, Javi Elsker de Detalande. Oh, man. I, okay. I should have got that one because I am one quarter Norwegian. And mm-hmm. Norway's anthem was the very first foreign language anthem, other than the French lyrics of O Canada, that I learned. And it was taught to me by my Norwegian grandmother. So oh. that one has a special place in my heart. But I had no idea that the, that the lyricist had won the uh, Nobel. So that is completely on me. One of the very first recipients of the Nobel Prize, basically right after it was founded, and he's considered yeah, one of... Yeah, and that would make sense, too, Nobel being Swedish, that most of the early ones would go to fellow Europeans and Scandinavians. Oh, man. Yeah, he's part of what's called the uh, Fira Stora, the four greats of the Norwegian writers of that era, along with Ibsen, Jonas Lee, and Alexander Kieland. But the most fun name to say is definitely Bjornstern Bjornsson. <laughs> All right, now to David and Anupama to steal from Brian. Mm-hmm. What basketball player won a 1960 NCAA championship with Ohio State University, 1960 Olympic gold medal as part of Team USA, and a 1973 NBA championship with the New York Knicks, and presumably remembers every minute of it, judging from his parallel reputation as a master of mnemonic techniques? Yeah. Have you got something? I've heard of this mnemonics guy. Okay. But I can't think of, I mean, obviously I don't remember. <laughs> Maybe I should have developed a mnemonic for that. Just <laughs> <laughs> pay a bit more attention to what he was teaching. Who <laughs> <laughs> you? I have no clue. I've heard of this guy, but I'm not even, not even able to remember a name, a first name or anything. Yeah. And I've got nothing, too. I mean, I'm trying to think of basketball players from that time period. But, mm. yeah, I, I'm not a sports guy, so I got Five, nothing new. Four. Hmm. Olympics and 73, the Knicks. Um, that was way before I started watching basketball. 73, Knicks. He must be some kind of speaker. I mean, like, he must have a reputation as a speaker or, like, a public speaker speaker to yeah. talk about his memory techniques I suppose I can't think of any basketball players who come to like the all-star events and stuff who have that kind of reputation you know I mean like Dr. J or anybody they all seem like just basketball guys exactly 
exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar has kind of a reputation of being sparked because he's been on Jeopardy a few times, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's way too early for him, mm-hmm. way too early for pretty much any basketball player I can name at this point. Yeah, I mean, it would be somebody who played alongside Dr. J, or I think he played in the 70s. What, um, like, I'm wondering, why does they call him Dr. J? Like, does he hold some kind of degree that would make him? Not sure. He has a PhD in basketball. Dr. J. I mean, that's probably the best guess that I've heard so far, but I have no idea. Yeah, he is not a good public speaker, I don't think. Yeah, but, um, (laughs) okay, let's go with Dr. J. I mean... Dr. J. Irving, I think his name is. Julius Irving, yeah. Lucky and Irving? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Brian? So Dr. J. was already playing in the 1970s. However, at that time, he was still in the rival American Basketball Association. Although uh, we're all thinking with the 1973 Knicks, they had a number of iconic players during that time. But I actually think the guy that we're looking for is Jerry Lucas. Yeah, so around what you said, David, about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he actually was active in that time. I think his career was like the late 60s, and because he's still playing by the 80s, so people don't realize how long he'd been around, but he had a very long career. Yeah, um, and Kareem was still with the Milwaukee Bucks, I believe, in 73. Yeah, he was active, but he hadn't even like joined the Lakers yet and made that part of his reputation. But yeah, as you said, there were many. For some reason, when I was a kid, I don't know how it happened. Somehow, I would just read everything that was around me, and so... Somehow in one of my elementary school classrooms, there was a biography of Walt Frazier, and I just picked it up and read actually several page, several parts of it were missing, but I read the parts that were there. And so I somehow developed a, an encyclopedic knowledge of Walt Frazier's career. But probably the most famous member of that team to non-basketball fans was, of course, future New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. But there were also on that Hall of Famer Dave DeBouchier, the famous center Willis Reed. Coaching legend Phil Jackson. And, of course, Jerry Lucas, the master yeah. of memory. And one legend I heard about Dr. J getting that nickname was apparently when he was going through his limited career in college. It was said that he had really long fingers like a surgeon. And that was a legend I heard about how he got that nickname. Okay. Okay. Interesting. All right. So now David and Brian to steal from Anupama. The very recent Makuto Bay raid, planned and executed by a Florida-based military company called Silver Corp USA, was a failed attempt to overthrow the government of which Latin American leader? Okay, so I think this might be Maduro of Venezuela. Oh yeah, it does say recent, so... Yeah, unfortunately that's the most recent one I can think of. Yeah, yeah, because I don't think uh, there's been too many government overthrows by the states um recently at least not latin america that was more in the 70s and 80s that they did all those so yeah i like maduro yes all right yeah so i was a current events question and yeah this is a current event from basically last week do you know remember uh anupama the the rival leader who's trying to overthrow maduro guido Guiado? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Guado? Something like that, yeah. Guiado or Guiado. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you credit for a bonus on that. Okay. Okay, and now Brian and Anupama to steal from David. Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Republic of the Congo, Benin, Guinea, Mali, Mauritania, and Senegal all have flags consisting of what three colors that are often described as a symbol of pan-African unity? Hmm. Green has got to be one of them. And I'm thinking red and black are the other two. So it's all in the sort of like the northwest. I know right. green, black. 
Okay, we can go with green, black, and red. Although that's kind of the um, South African colors as well, right? So it's not really unique. They have a couple other colors in their flag. I think they have gold Yellow. stripe and uh, blue stripe, but I think it's red, green, and black for Pan-African unity. Okay, let's go with that. Sounds good. All right, you're locked in red, green, and black. David? Okay, well, red, green, and black flags, are, they are African, and Marcus Garvey designed a red, green, and black flag to be used for African-Americans that you might see from time to time in African-American communities in the United States, but those tend to be more used, I believe, well, they, they, I mean, there are a couple of African flags, but I believe they're more commonly used in Caribbean nations that have African populations, but the nations that Yogesh mentioned all take their colors from the Ethiopian flag, which was the first independent Black Republic. And that was the role model for those countries because Ethiopia meant stay independent against European colonialism. So they also adopted Ethiopia's red, green, and yellow colors in their flag. Yeah, I listed the countries that had only those colors. There are several more that use those colors as the main ones, but have a few other elements. So Ethiopia, for instance, has those three bands, but it also has a blue circle with a yellow national emblem in the middle. But yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right about them all kind of deriving from Ethiopia. And you're also right about red, green, and black certainly do have Pan-African connotations, thanks to Marcus Garvey and that flag. But the, the ones that this question was pointing to are uh, red, green, and yellow. Okay. Okay. All right, now David and Anupama to steal from Brian. So of the 38 independent cities in Virginia, the smallest of them at just 2.1 square miles in area is what municipality best known to TV fans as the home of the Jennings family on The Americans? I never watched The Americans, but um, it's got to be close to the Pentagon or whatever. Maybe it's like... That would make sense, yeah. Because that's a show about the uh, Russian spies posing as Americans, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, so that would make sense. It's got to be close to there. So there's Arlington near there. Matter of fact, Arlington is where the Pentagon is located. Yeah, but the close to there, there's also a very small city called Crystal City. And there's also Alexandria, too, that's right near there, too. I was just in that area a couple of months ago. I think where Pentagon is, um, it's probably a big city. But is it big in land area? Yeah, I, I've been to those areas so many times, but I don't know what the what the borders are and like which ones yeah, are. Yeah, no, neither do I, but I know that all those cities are really, uh, really tiny. But exactly. uh, I like your thinking that it would have to be near the Pentagon. So I, I would know either Alexandria or Arlington. I think Arlington Cemetery itself is more than 2.1 square miles. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is big. That yeah. is something that I saw when I was uh, in the area a couple of months ago. I did see Arlington Cemetery. Mm-hmm. You want to go with Crystal City? Given the fact that I hadn't heard of it, that might be because it's small. Also, is it near the Pentagon? Yeah, it's oh. uh, it's right there in that area, and I think it's just a bunch of apartments, <laughs> and like a okay, very then. small residential town. But I've never seen the Americans, so I'm not sure. No, but uh, again, I like I like your reasoning of the fact that it should be near the Pentagon because it uh, is about spies and all that. So I will go with Crystal City. I'm one hundred percent behind you on that. I like your reasoning that you've been using. Okay, we are locking Crystal City. All right. Yeah, I actually wasn't 
familiar with Crystal City. I'm looking it up just now. It sounds like an interesting place I should learn more about, but uh, not correct in this case. Brian? Okay, so question, I haven't watched The Americans myself, so I've got to narrow this down from the small northern Virginia independent city, so you were really close in the neighborhood. You had the right idea by uh, going to that part of the state. And I'm trying to think if it's Alexandria, Fairfax, or Falls Church. And there's a part of my gut that says that Falls Church is the smallest of the three. I'm going to Falls Church. Uh, yeah, so probably the, one of the biggest um, misconceptions about American geography I've discovered, uh, especially for people not from that area, is that there is a city called Arlington, Virginia. I discovered at some point that even though we always talk about the cemetery, the Pentagon as being in Arlington, Virginia, that's not actually a city, independent or otherwise. It's a oh, county. Okay. That's oh, not. Okay. Yeah, in fact, Crystal City is within that county, so it's also not technically a city. It's more just kind of a neighborhood. Um, oh. the, yeah. So in terms of independent cities, Virginia has an odd sort of a state constitution. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. odd. Uh, constitution means that it, it has a number of cities that lie outside the jurisdiction of counties. Outside of Virginia, only St. Louis, Baltimore, and Carson City are really the only cities that are independent in that regard. But there are 38 in Virginia. Land-wise, the smallest of them is Falls Church. Okay. Way to go, Brian. Thank you. All right. And now, Brian and David, to try and steal from Nupama. In 1971, Nike co-founder Bill Bowerman had an epiphany that led to a revolutionary new form of running shoe. This epiphany occurred while he was watching his wife use what common kitchen implement? If you visit Prefontaine Hall at Nike's world headquarters, you can see the actual implement, which was uh, apparently rescued from a trash heap in 2010, on display in a protective case. This story sounds somewhat familiar. I want to say waffle iron, because I think the original shoes had a bit of a waffle pattern. Oh, okay, because I was trying to think of a connection between running shoes and a common kitchen implement. So I like your reasoning there, and I was kind of hoping Yogesh would ask about what university... Right. He, he was with, which I do know. I'm not going to say it in case it's a bonus question for an Anapama, but yeah, I like waffle iron. Yeah. I mean, yeah, around here, it's not a huge mystery as to what university uh, Nike is associated with, but um, yeah, no, you want to go ahead and, and say it, Anapama? Oregon University yeah. of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, around here, I mean, yeah, I'm within, you know, short driving distance of Beaverton, so it's not a, it's pretty common knowledge around um yeah of course it's it's the other the other founder phil knight has a much bigger imprint but i i don't remember if it was, i've talked on this podcast about it but yeah his son runs uh Leica, the animation studio which is also an employer around here but yeah no as you said bill bowerman was watching his wife make breakfast he then decided to commandeer the waffle iron which had been i think a wedding gift and uh pour rubber into it but he did not pour a non-stick anything you know non, non-stick on it beforehand so it was completely ruined and thrown out but apparently uh was rescued at some point and is now kept on display so it was sitting in the trash for what 40 years and apparently, they found it apparently yes wow they found one specific waffle iron that's wow. All right. And now going into the final cycle. So each person will have one more specialist question directed at them and two more chances to steal. All right. First, Brian and Anopama to steal from David. Surprisingly common in the Portland area, the flag depicting a coiled timber rattlesnake on a yellow field above the words, don't tread on me, was originally designed during the American Revolution by which South Carolina patriot general, whose family name is today more associated with the southwestern part of the United States? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I think that is called a Gadsden flag, and the Gadsden purchase was when the U.S. bought that little parts of Arizona and New Mexico in the Southwest. And I think I heard Gadsden flag somewhere reading an article about the tea parties that would use mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. uh, Don Tradome flag. Mm -hmm. That sounds very plausible because I was trying to think of the name of that purchase that you just mentioned. I couldn't. That sounds very plausible. Let's go with that. All right. Yeah. Gadsden. Yeah. Or well, I I mean, I think you said Gadsden, which is technically off, but I know I've been I've been strict on consonants before, but this is such a similar sound that I think I'll just accept it. But yeah, it's uh, Gadsden. So Christopher Gadsden was the general. His grandson, James Gadsden, negotiated the purchase. And surprisingly strong, um, despite Portland's reputation, the area around it, especially around here in Vancouver, has some surprisingly strong uh, right-wing leanings. Some people call it Vantucky. Whoa. Oh. Yeah, it's not not unusual to see that Gadsden flag around here. Mm. And now, uh, David, and enough want to steal from Ryan. All right. John Wooden is, of course, legendary for his coaching career at UCLA. But before that, he played guard at what Big Ten school, where his 1931-32 team has been retroactively recognized as a national champion for their 17-1 record that season. Wooden led the team in scoring with an impressive 12.1 points per game, which was a lot in those days. Mm -hmm. Okay, as we learned earlier, Big Ten is in the Midwest, so mm -hmm. let's go <laughs> Let's go with something. Um, so the only other popular school right now for basketball is Wisconsin. Um, yeah, I don't even know what schools other than Kansas are popular for basketball in that area. And Big Ten, 1930. Jeez, I didn't know he was even active in 31, 32. Wow, he's been around a while. Huh? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't I'll, know I'll call Wisconsin. I've got. I've got really nothing to go on with this. I don't know whether Michigan is part of the Big Ten, but I think we should go with Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah, the Big Ten keeps expanding now. I think it's up to like 14 teams. <laughs> well, why do they call it the Big Ten? question. <laughs> but the... Um... Just, the Big 12, I think, now has 10. So if they just sent two of them over, they would both be. Or no, well, they still have to send two. Americans. Yeah, <laughs> to send a couple more out to the Big 10 to make it make sense. But um, yeah, no, that is the right part of the country. It is definitely a, a Midwest-centered uh, conference, but not the right answer. Brian? All right, I'm trying to remember if it's Minnesota or Purdue. And Purdue seems to make a little more sense to me because Purdue and Indiana are in-state rivals and both have a long basketball tradition also wooden kind of has a midwestern sensibility about him i'm going to guess purdue do you know which uh, what was the only team to beat them during that season let's say you guys bowed it around before but i'm going to guess notre dame maybe they had an outer conference game with notre dame so you were yeah you were right about purdue but just because i was curious this isn't like a famous sure. actor or anything i i looked up what the only school to beat because i saw 17 and 1 i was like oh who, i wonder who beat them and of course for uh statriotic reasons i have to say that it was the university of illinois Ooh, okay all right and now we come to the so purdue item. was the answer to the question correct yes purdue was right. correct the boilermakers i think they are Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, is Wisconsin in the Big Ten? I don't, I'm not sure which conference. Sure are, yes. 
Oh, okay. So that was a good guess then. Mm-hmm. And now the final question of the game. We'll start with Brian and David to uh, seal from Anupama. All right. So it's surprisingly difficult to get agreement between any two sources on the overall length of a country's coastline. But there does seem to be somewhat general consensus on what the four nations are with the smallest ratio of oceanic coastline to overall land area. Remember our earlier uh, definition of what is a nation. And of course, this is only talking about nations with non-zero coastlines. It doesn't really make sense otherwise. Mm -hmm. So of four nations with the smallest ratio of coastline to overall land area, name any two. Okay, I would definitely say that Democratic Republic of Congo is one of them. It's a huge country. Mm -hmm. I think it's in like the top 20 of land area, and it has like a 10 kilometer long coastline. So DRC is definitely one of them. That makes sense. Uh, Anybody else with small coastlines? Yeah. Who else would have just a slither? Would it be anything like Croatia or Slovenia, where they managed to get just enough coastline. No, Croatia has too yeah, much. Yeah, Croatia to has a ton of coastline. You might be yeah. thinking of Bosnia, who's uh, that could be almost yeah. cut off by Croatia and Slovenia too. Uh, of the two, I like Bosnia. Sure. Um, so I was trying to just picture the area and talk through it that way. Yeah, you know what? I would go with those two. DSD, definitely. Bosnia, I don't think it's second, but it's probably in the top four. So, yeah, let's go with that. All right. Locking in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Bosnia and Herzegovina? Correct. Mm-hmm. Going for at least long country names, if not long coastlines. Fair enough. All right, I'll keep quiet about that. And before I reveal the answer, I'll let Anupama guess. Or Anupama, sorry. I was going to go with, I'm not sure whether any of these is right. I'll go with the Ukraine. And let me think of one more. This one needs to be a large country. I don't know. Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure. I think it had yeah. a pretty long coastline on the Arabian Gulf, but not sure what else impinges on it. So I think yeah. both of them. Saudi Arabia touches the Arabian Sea, but it has it has one very long coastline on the Red Sea and another on the Persian Gulf. Oh, so very wrong. Yeah, but, uh, the, the even if you don't count the Crimea, which I guess we're not supposed to now, uh, Ukraine is very much on the Black Sea. Like, it has a very long coastline. But yeah, in terms of, like, the ratios, of, I think not in the top four, but right outside the top four is Algeria, which also has a really long coastline. Oh, but yeah, the country is so huge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I never would have thought about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah surprised by that because it has a pretty long coastline though but the right way to think about this is of course the one with super tiny coastline so yeah drc as you said um barely reaches over very slightly to touch the ocean and it's a huge country the two that people often don't realize that iraq has a very small coastline on the Persian, and um this one i was really thrown by because i didn't know i hadn't even occurred to me at all but jordan has a very small coastline on the red sea yeah that's true yes and i've been to jordan I didn't even think of it. So. Yeah, so those are three of the four. For the other one, a lot of people now know that like Game of Thrones, for instance, was filmed in uh, Dubrovnik, right, which is in the part of Croatia that's split off from, it's basically an enclave because it's split off from the rest of it because for whatever reason, what's called the Noom Corridor, a very, very small corridor is carved in there to allow Bosnia and Herzegovina to touch the ocean. So it has a tiny little coastline. So even though it's a tiny country, the ratio is still fairly large. So you did get those right with the DRC and... Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
Yeah, I think that uh, Neum coastline goes all the way back to like 17th century feudal lords trading things, and yeah, I think that's that's where that goes back. So that's what goes way back. Yeah, it's amazing what kind of like ancient history can have uh, consequences now. All right, so we've uh, we've reached the end of the game. Final score is 42.1 for David, 61.0 for Brian, 16.1 for Anupama. Okay. Very good, everyone, but especially Brian, that's an extremely high score, mm-hmm. one of the best we've had. Nice. Thank you. Pleasure Thanks. playing with both of you, and thanks again, uh, your guests, for having us. All right. This was fun. This was a pleasure. Yeah, and despite our late start, we actually did finish on time. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah. So we'll give you know, each of you a chance to basically just make a, a final statement. It can be about anything you want. It can be about the world at large, about the game, any combination of those things. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. And uh, we'll go in scoring order, so the lowest scoring player has the last word. So I'll start with Brian. Again, just want to thank everyone listening to this for uh, your time. And really, remember, infrastructure is all around us. It's not just roads and bridges, but it's the internet fiber cables that allow you to listen to this if you're streaming. It's our clean water and the sewage that gets treated. And just bear that in mind when you're thinking about the choices we make as a society. That's all. Good message. Uh, All right, uh, David? Okay, well, I've given shout-outs on these things before, so I'm starting to run out of things to shout-out. But what I want to shout-out now is just, I want to just urge everybody to keep being intellectually curious, especially in the lockdown stay-at-home era. Uh, You have a lot of time to learn. Crack open a book, do research, find out things that you don't know before. One of my favorite quotes comes from noted Jeopardy player Ken Jennings, and he says that the secret to win on Jeopardy is to be an information omnivorous person your entire life. And I would like to encourage people to keep devouring as much information as they can. Knowledge is a great thing to have. Yeah, very good message and yeah i think in uh aj jacobs book the know-it-all i think there's a part where he talks to alex trebek and some of the effect of you know it's it's easy to be interested in things that you're interested in but i also try to be interested in the things i'm not interested in mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. all right uh, anupama yeah thanks for having us this was a lot of fun so i guess i should think a lot more about what my subjects are like chemistry was one of the things that I chose and obviously I don't remember too much but anyway it was really fun to spend an afternoon a rainy afternoon on Mother's Day when I really don't celebrate except to call my mom so this was a lot of fun and I also wanted to end with you know sometimes we call it trivia and then it's it's like, you know, oh, you do trivia as though it's like not important. There are so many things that I've learned just because I talk to intelligent people like you guys. And some of the things that you wouldn't even think of, you know, it starts you on either like a research or like a wiki rabbit hole or whatever. <laughs> you end up learning so much. And then you're like, I've lived on this earth for so long and I didn't know about this until today. Right. So I just wish I had started playing pub quiz etc more than three years ago anyway this was fun and i hope we get to do it again in the meantime everyone stay safe and stay in and hope to talk to you also yeah thank you that's a, a great message and yeah i do encourage people you know when they come on this podcast to feel free to tailor their areas of specialization to you know things they're really passionate about you don't have to stick with broad macro level categories mm-hmm. it can even be one state as it was in brian's case <laughs> That was episode 16 of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thanks for listening.